It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZE Community Show and this show are now also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe and rate us to help others find the shows. My name is Natalie Bucknell and I'm joined today by my co-host Kira Rundle. Hi Nat, hi listeners. Hi Kira. Today we're delighted to have Gavin Mooney back in the studio with us. Gavin is a solution advisor with SAP Australia, a company that specialises in enterprise application software. Last year, Gavin took us on a tour of the world of artificial intelligence and energy. Today, Gavin joins us again to discuss a series of articles about hydrogen that he recently published on LinkedIn. Hi, Gavin. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Nat. How are you going? It's good to be back. Thank you. Great. So last year, there were a number of announcements of new renewable hydrogen production facilities under development and our chief scientist Alan Finkel has promoted hydrogen as an energy source that could play a significant role in our energy systems and our economy. So we've talked about hydrogen on the show before but I think it's really worthwhile to step back and take that overview that you've carried out in your articles. So Gavin you say there's a lot to like about hydrogen so what are the properties that make it so attractive? That's right, Natalie, there really is. So hydrogen is a gas that can be burnt to release heat, much like natural gas. But unlike other fuels, when you burn hydrogen, the only byproducts are water vapour and heat. So we've got no carbon emissions going up into the atmosphere, no other greenhouse gases. Uh, it's also a great energy carrier. So if we compare it with, uh, with natural gas, a kilo of natural gas contains 14 kilowatt hours, but a kilo of hydrogen contains 33 kilowatt hours, so more than twice as much. Mm. And this energy, we can release it through combustion as heat or as electricity using a fuel cell. Wow, that sounds all very exciting. So can you tell us why there's so much discussion around hydrogen at the moment? Well, the interest in hydrogen is all focused on its potential for the deep decarbonisation of energy systems. And this idea of a hydrogen economy actually goes back decades, all the way back to the 70s. But hydrogen has never really been competitive at scale. But what we're seeing now is increasing pressure on countries to reduce their emissions because they've signed up to the Paris Agreement. We're also seeing the falling costs of renewable energy. I mean, we, we all know that it's been falling in the last five or 10 years. But if you actually look back over a 40 year period, mm. the, the, the price of solar has fallen by a factor of 100, which is quite staggering. Wow. And also the emergence of an export market. So countries that need to decarbonize but can't produce their own low carbon energy will have to look to import. As an example, Japan currently has to import uh, fossil fuels for 94% mm. of its primary energy supply. Wow. If we want to do, achieve decarbonisation through hydrogen, then all hydrogens aren't the same, are they? That's right, yes. And they, they actually come in uh, different colours, which is quite interesting. <laughs> so most of the hydrogen used in the world today 
and we're talking about 95, 96% is produced from fossil fuels. There are a few different processes that can be used. The most common is steam methane reforming, where, where high temperature steam is used to produce hydrogen from natural gas. So these, uh, these hydrogens that are made from fossil fuels are called uh, brown hydrogen or sometimes grey hydrogen. Okay, and they produce a lot of carbon dioxide in the same process, is exactly, that right? Exactly, they do. Uh, so a, a slightly improved option might be what's called blue hydrogen, which is... Uh, the hydrogen made from fossil fuels, but then we use carbon capture and storage mm. to try and to try and sequester that carbon dioxide. In other words, we stuff it back underground. Mm -hmm. uh, but the best one, the one that we're focused on in in uh, all these decarbonisation efforts, is green hydrogen. So that's made by the electrolysis of water, so splitting mm -hmm. water into hydrogen and oxygen using renewable energy. So no carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases out of that one. Nothing at all. So why should Australia be thinking about hydrogen? Well, Australia is very well placed to take uh, advantage of these hydrogen opportunities. And first and foremost, we have this vast availability of land. So Australia is an enormous country, but we've also got really good quality renewable energy resources. So it's very sunny. You know, there are places in Australia where it's sunny most of the day, almost every day. We've also got great wind resources. But not only that, but Australia is located quite close to the emerging hydrogen import markets of Asia, mm -hmm. such as Japan and Korea. And we've already got expertise and experience in the construction of large-scale energy infrastructure. You know, we are the world's largest exporter of LNG. So we're already an ex energy export superpower. And you know, we're looking at some of these target export markets such as Japan. Well, Japan already buys about half of our LNG exports. So we've already got this trusted sort of trading relationship mm -hmm. with them. All right. So diving a little bit deeper into how hydrogen can play a role in decarbonization in Australia. Can you tell us what are the three areas that hydrogen can play a part when we look at each, and then we'll look at each in, in more detail? Sure, yeah. So for the, uh, for the use cases in Australia itself, I think three I'd call out would be domestic heat, which would include space heating, water, cool, water heating and, uh, and cooking, as well as transportation and then industrial processes. So you say that in the short term... A lot of those functions are performed by natural gas and there's potential maybe for hydrogen to have a short-term impact in that area. How does that work? Yeah, that's right. So about 70% of Australian homes currently use mains natural gas or bottled propane gas. So if we inject small amounts of hydrogen into the existing natural gas grid, then we can carry out a gradual transition. And there are quite a few trial projects underway at the moment that are looking at this blending of hydrogen. For example, we've got the Hydrogen Park in Adelaide, or there's Gemina's Power to Gas trial in Sydney, or Atco's Clean Energy Hub over in, in WA. So just normal household appliances can accommodate a gas supply that incorporates hydrogen? Yeah, that's right. So domestic appliances are certified up to 13% hydrogen. Uh, and there's a little bit of history there. I think that is considered to be twice the expected amount in a, in a normal natural gas grid. Um, but depending on where you look, some people think that concentrations of up to 30% are possible. Now, and the, the what, trials we've talked about, I think, are low, low concentration, about 5 or 10%, something like that. Okay. And our existing gas network can also handle that much hydrogen? Well, the domestic, the, the, the distribution gas network can because most of those, most of those pipes are, are plastic pipes. But the transmission pipelines, a lot of those are metal. And you can get metal embrittlement with high concentrations of hydrogen. So, yeah, there would probably have to be a little bit of work done there if we were going to go to very high concentrations of hydrogen. You put an argument that 
while it's expensive to modify the existing gas system to accommodate hydrogen, that potentially it's cheaper than upgrading the electricity system to have capacity to cover all of the existing natural gas applications in addition to the existing electricity consumption. Can, can you talk, talk us through that? Yeah, sure. So I think the transition to 100% hydrogen would be a real effort, and we can, we can look into that a little bit. But electrification using renewable energy is another pathway to decarbonise the sector. But to, the problem, to replace natural gas. Yes, that's right. Uh, the, the trouble is the demand is very seasonal, especially in the colder states such as Victoria. So in other words, what I'm saying is our gas consumption in Victoria is much higher in winter than it is in summer. And that's because the, the gas is used for heating homes. So you find in, in Victoria, our peak demand for electricity is about eight or nine gigawatts currently. But if we use electricity for heating instead of gas... Oh, sorry, that's our peak demand for gas, do you mean? Peak is, demand for electricity. Oh, is um, nine? Yeah. Right. If we if we then replaced all that gas consumption with electricity, we'd be looking at a peak demand of about 25 gigawatts just for Victoria. Wow. And so that means we'd have this enormous overbuild of transmission, distribution, even storage infrastructure that would really only be needed in winter. So if we hark back to recent conversations with Alan Pears, if we can implement the 50% efficiency, um, you know, en energy savings through efficiency, then we could halve those transmission requirements to a peak of 12 so. Yeah, I think uh, energy efficiency is something we need to look at. It's a good option. Um, but if we're talking about domestic space heating, then to increase efficiency, what we can do is things like insulate our homes better. We could use passive design. So, that, you know, the low winter sun comes in your window through a, a deciduous tree rather than being blocked out and things like that. Um, but I think also electrical heat pumps might offer a, uh, a good option there. Yeah, if we're talking efficiency, they're sort of 400 percent upwards of 400% compared with 95%. For yeah, that's right. So you get these very high efficiencies with, with heat pumps. Uh, you've got to remember, it's it's not really an efficiency that's greater than 100%. Of course, that, that's impossible. But what we're doing is the electricity that they consume isn't being used to generate heat. It's being used to transfer heat from one place to another. So they are quite efficient. But I think what's holding them back is probably the cost and maybe a lack of awareness as well of the options out there. Okay, and I guess there's issues with efficiency of conversion to hydrogen, which we'll go into later. Yes, well, absolutely. Kira, shall I throw to you for the next question? Well, yeah, actually, I did want to talk about the efficiency of converting hydrogen to electrical energy. Can you can you talk about what are I guess what are the efficiency barriers to that? Yes, certainly. So, if we're looking at domestic consumption, then we're probably going to look at efficiency of around 70-75% and that's uh, those losses are due to the electrolyzer so converting electricity using electricity to convert water into the hydrogen uh, but in terms of you know how this how this stacks up with electrification versus you know transitioning the gas network to to hydrogen it's um it's a little bit of of a race really i mean there are some advantages for hydrogen because you know you can't get away from the fact that once you've got the hydrogen, you can store it in the natural gas network, which is already there. Whereas electricity, you know, you have to use it when it's generated or invest in storage, which is still quite expensive. Mm -hmm. Some of the, the downsides for hydrogen are, you know, we've got these trials that we talked about 
uh, which are blending maybe 5 to 10% hydrogen into the network already, but that's by volume. And when you look at the, the actual heating content, it might only be about 3% or, or something like that. So there's some, there's some challenges there. So I think um, it'll be interesting to see, to see how it goes. But when we talk about exports, maybe later on, we'll see that if we ramp up to the sort of production levels we're talking about, then a lot of this won't, won't really matter anymore. So if we take transport, that's an interesting example where we can look at the efficiencies as well. So how, what role can hydrogen play in the energy we use for transport? That is a good one. And there's been a lot of discussion around this. So most people seem to accept that there is going to be a transition from uh, internal combustion engine vehicles to electric vehicles. And they come in broadly two flavours. There are the ones that have a battery in them and there are the ones that are using a hydrogen fuel cell. Now, there are some advantages for the fuel cell ones, such as faster recharge times and longer ranges, but efficiency is a real killer. So there are substantial losses in converting electricity to hydrogen, then storing that hydrogen, and then converting it back to electricity mm. to drive the motor. And if we look at you know, a comparison of fuel cell electric vehicles and battery electric vehicles, and we take 100 kilowatt hours of, of energy input, well, the battery electric vehicle is going to actually use 69 kilowatt hours of that energy, so it's 69% efficient. Whereas the fuel cell electric vehicle is only going to use 23 kilowatt hours. So we're saying, mm -hmm. in other words, the fuel cell vehicle is going to use three times as much electricity per kilometer. Does that mean that it's going to impact the weight of the car then? If you, do you need higher capacity to get those longer ranges that you were talking about? Well, there are um, a few facets here. So. Another disadvantage of the fuel electric vehicle is not only the cost to produce the hydrogen, but the vehicle itself, the initial outlay is actually greater. In other words, a fuel cell vehicle costs more than mm -hmm. a battery electric vehicle. But there are some, uh, some applications where it's still worth it. So the weight, as you mentioned, well, with uh, batteries are heavy. And if you want to increase the range, you have to get a bigger battery. And that mm -hmm. impacts the, mm -hmm. the weight again. Whereas mm -hmm. with a fuel cell electric vehicle, all you need to do to increase the range is increase the size of the hydrogen tank. And so if you think about you know, the, the weight of a tank, it's, gonna, it's like the surface area of a cube. So it squares with, it goes up with R squared, whereas the battery weight is going to go up with, with R cubed effectively. So we are seeing some applications for the fuel cell electric vehicles. And one of those would be long distance trucking. For example, the, the Tesla semi truck has a range of 800 kilometers. That's battery electric mm -hmm. vehicle. Whereas the Nikola One fuel cell electric vehicle truck has a range of 1900 kilometers. Wow. That's and some companies are backing this. So Anheuser-Busch, for example, has placed an order for 800 Nikola One trucks. Mm. Um, and I know that there are some safety concerns with using pure hydrogen. Well, at least what comes to mind for me anyway is the explosive nature of hydrogen. So. Do you think that's a valid concern when you put a tank full of hydrogen in a vehicle? I think it's the sort of thing that might concern some people. But in my mind, it's probably similar to the, the range anxiety we get with electric vehicles that mm. need to be recharged. And, and it probably isn't a genuine concern. I mean, we've seen things with battery electric vehicles catching fire and stuff like that. I think it's, it's going to be more isolated incidents mm. than, a, than a genuine concern. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you've just joined us, we're speaking with Gavin Mooney from SAP about hydrogen. So just to finish off that conversation about use of hydrogen in transport, are there other applications that it's currently used for? Uh, yeah, apart from the trucks that we mentioned, forklifts is another one. Really? So Toyota Industries are actually making hydrogen powered forklifts. And it's because you have faster recharge times, which means the forklift has a higher availability. 
right. so it can be productive, you know, carrying things around the warehouse uh, for a, a larger part of the day. And that actually makes it worthwhile going with hydrogen. We've talked now about domestic heating, transport, and the final um, category that you mentioned for where hydrogen could be really useful was in industry. So let's talk about that for the next few minutes. Sure. So that is a really important area to consider. Uh, Extremely high temperature heat is required to make steel, for example, and cement. Uh, And the the temperatures we're talking about for steel, we're looking at 1100 degrees C and uh, 1400 for cement. Mm. And so the the combustion to produce heat for industrial processes actually accounts for 10 percent of global CO2 emissions. And when you compare that to cars, a 6 percent aviation is 2 percent. You know, we hear a lot Mm. about flying shame and that sort of thing, but it's actually only 2 percent. And cement and steel and other industrial processes are 10 so um, for these applications, hydrogen provides quite a uh, viable means of decarbonisation. But as well as industrial heat, hydrogen also has uh, uses as a chemical feedstock. So this is where we're, we're not burning hydrogen to release heat, but we're using the chemical properties of hydrogen for things like ammonia production, for example, or mm. petrochemical refining. And these processes currently use that brown hydrogen that we talked about, which comes from fossil right. fuels. So if we switch that over to our green hydrogen, then, yeah, we're going to start decarbonizing that sector as well. And the properties of both brown and green hydrogen would be the same, I'm assuming. It's just the it's matter by which you make it. That's right. right. Mm-hmm. So we've been discussing different opportunities for domestic consumption, Gavin, but you've argued that there's also a lot of export opportunities. Can you tell us about some of these? Yeah, definitely. So hydrogen demand is expected to increase quite a lot, but it varies. So global consumption is about 55 million tonnes today, and that's expected to increase to somewhere between 100 and 300 million tonnes in 2050. And as we've already mentioned, we've got countries such as Japan and Korea, which are heavily dependent on imported fossil fuels for a large part of their energy supply. And they're looking to decarbonise. So Japan, for example, is looking to get 40% of all of its energy from hydrogen by 2050, as well as they want to showcase it at this year's Olympics. Oh, so how are they doing to, that? They're going to power the Olympic Village with hydrogen. Uh, the, the buses that shuttle people around are going to be powered by hydrogen, and even the Olympic torch is going to be burning hydrogen. Oh, wow. So that sounds like some amazing opportunities for Australia, great economic opportunities. So are they cost competitive now? Not really. So... Exported hydrogen is much more expensive than hydrogen produced for local consumption because we've got those transportation costs as well. And if we look at uh, green hydrogen in Australia, we're currently producing that for about $7 a kilo. But that is expected to fall to the ballpark of $2 a kilo by the 2025 to 2030 time frame. And that's so just be- for comparison, mm-hmm. how much is brown hydrogen currently? Oh, it would be around $2.50, something like that. Right. And what about natural gas? Natural gas would be similar around that. Like yeah. the, the energy equivalent would be yeah. maybe a dollar fifty or two dollars, yeah. okay. something like that. Um, so we really need to scale the industry. You know, increase yeah. plant size, uh, get greater efficiencies, the falling cost of renewable energy as well. As we scale, well, the cost will come down. That will drive mm-hmm. demand. We'll get this virtuous circle going. Hopefully, yes. Well, if the pricing for solar is indicative, if we get that hundredfold decrease, what about yes, that? Hope over the next going. 40 years, and we would be paying to, <laughs> to get rid of our hydrogen. So what are the shipping options for exporting hydrogen and what are the pros and cons of those processes? Okay, broadly, the, the two main options are liquefaction, so converting gaseous hydrogen to liquid hydrogen or conversion to ammonia. 
Now with liquefaction, you use a lot of energy to liquefy the hydrogen. And then during transport, you actually lose some as well due to boil off. You mm. just lose some of the liquid hydrogen, it boils away. Um, with ammonia, you use energy to convert hydrogen and nitrogen to ammonia. And then you have to have a chemical process at the other end to convert it back to gaseous hydrogen. In, in terms of cost, they're probably broadly similar, but we here in Australia think there are some advantages for ammonia. For example, we've already got a lot of experience in shipping ammonia. So the port of Dampier up in uh, WA already exports uh, 6% of the world's ammonia. Um, and ammonia can be shipped around the world in the same sort of class of vessel as LNG already. Whereas with liquid hydrogen, you're going to need a whole new mm. class of, of ship. So just for you know, the sake of arguments, in, if Australia decided to put all of its economic export eggs in the hydrogen <laughs> basket and set out to replace all of our current LNG exports with hydrogen, what would that involve? <laughs> <laughs> this is something that our chief scientist, Alan Finkel, likes talking about. So our current LNG exports in Australia are around 70 million tonnes. If we look at oh. the energy content of that, that's about the same as 30 million tonnes of hydrogen. If we look at the energy content of that, that's about 1,000 terawatt hours. So we want to be exporting 1,000 terawatt hours of energy in the form of hydrogen. But we know that there are losses along the way. So we've got losses in the electrolyzer, losses in transportation, so on. Those losses are around 50%. Mm. So if we want 1,000 terawatt hours out, we need to put 2,000 terawatt yeah. hours in. Now, if that all comes from renewable energy, well, we know that the sun doesn't shine all the time, the wind doesn't blow all the time. So we have this thing called a capacity factor for our renewable energy capacity. If we run with a 30% capacity factor, well, that means that to generate 2,000 terawatt hours of energy in a year, we would need 700 gigawatts of renewable capacity. Uh, to put that in context, peak demand in Australia at the moment is about 30 or 40 gigawatts. Compared to 700. So it's a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, if we, running with this further, if, if that 700 gigawatts was all solar, then those solar panels would cover an area of 18,000 square kilometres. Now, what does that mean? It's a number to be able to Well, that's actually the size of a small country. So um, it's Fiji or Kuwait, something like that. Mm -hmm. It's also three quarters the size of the Anna Creek cattle station, which is the world's largest cattle station. So it sounds quite challenging. Uh, but you've got to think that Australia is a very big country. And 18,000 square kilometres is actually just a quarter of 1% of Australia's land mass. So when you, when you put it like that, maybe it's not so far-fetched after all. Mm. Still quite a huge undertaking and interesting to see how it develops. So if, if we had even a fraction of, of that capacity for producing hydrogen, what impact could this have on our electricity system? Yeah, this is really interesting because if all that renewable capacity is grid connected, then we actually end up greening our domestic electricity supply sort of by accident on the side. Mm. And that's because, you know, even on a bad day, we're going to be, you know, maybe we're, we've only got 10% of that 700 gigawatts output. That's still enough to cover domestic demand. And you've got to think that, you know, with a sufficient level of interconnection, it may be a cloudy, calm day in Victoria, but the wind might be blowing mm. in Tasmania. The sun yeah. might be shining in Queensland and New South Wales. And so there's always going to be enough to, to share around. And also there, there are a number of other benefits just for the grid stability on the whole. So hydrogen electrolyzers can be scaled up and down very quickly. They're a very flexible load. So we can have them consume cheap, excess renewable energy when it's available and then 
when demand's higher and costs are higher, they can scale back or even turn off. Mm-hmm. And because they can react so quickly, and we're talking about in less than a second, they can actually provide FCAS services. So, you know, grid support, frequency control, fast frequency response, that sort of stuff. And then, you know, we, we're producing all this hydrogen gas. Well, in terms of dispatchable renewable generation, you know, we've only got batteries and pumped hydro really at the moment. But hydrogen is another option there. And hydrogen can be stored economically for long periods of time, unlike batteries and pumped hydro isn't really suitable Mm. for weeks or months. So what we're saying is we can take excess renewable energy that's generated in summer, convert it to hydrogen and store it for consumption in winter. So we have this seasonal storage option as well. And that technology already exists to be able to store hydrogen. So cost efficiently. Yeah, it's just all there. So with all these benefits, there must be other countries eyeing off these markets what competition do we have Gavin? There are a few um, Qatar in the Middle East is a country with a lot of solar resources so they would uh, they would be looking to get in on the hydrogen act and Norway too with a lot of hydro but those two countries are both quite a long way from Japan and, and Korea which which counts against them uh, we also think in the, in the US there's a lot of potential there but again they might be looking to consume a lot of their hydrogen mm. domestically rather than export it. And the good news is there's quite a lot to go around. Uh, you know, we're yeah. only looking at Australia capturing maybe 20% of the Japanese market to, to, to sustain our industry. Yeah, and if we're getting hydrogen from water splitting, I'm assuming that we could use seawater for that process? Uh, what we can we can use seawater and use a, a desalinization plant, and that would obviously consume a little bit of energy, but compared to the amount of energy that's going into the electrolyzer, it's, uh, it's very small. And so what are the challenges and pitfalls of these export opportunities? Okay, there, there are a few. Um, people might say, why wouldn't Japan generate its own? And, and the mm-hmm. truth is, Japan has a lack of suitable sites, really. So solar might be one promising um, option, but Japan has a rainy season and a lot of snowfall. So maybe offshore wind. But then Japan is on a fault line. It suffers from frequent natural disasters. Uh, the, the seabed close to the coast is actually very deep so they might be looking at floating offshore wind which Mm. is obviously quite a new technology um and also the the costs you know if they can buy uh hydrogen using carbon capture and storage then why would they go with green hydrogen but also i think demand is probably the the biggest risk really you know if, if demand doesn't take off then the industry probably won't scale gavin if people want to read up on this a bit more where can they go to find out a bit more information about it uh, I would recommend the Energy Insiders podcast hosted by Giles Parkinson. Again, they they feature hydrogen content every so often. There's also the website of the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, ARENA. They've got several pages on hydrogen. And also a report um, from the International Energy Agency that came out in June last year. Makes some pretty good reading. Thank you. Thanks for your time today, Gavin. My pleasure. We've been speaking to Gavin Mooney from SAP. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe to help others find the show. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs, please go to our website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. 
the market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.